This episode is brought to you by FastCase and its comprehensive suite of legal intelligence tools. FastCase offers the full suite from legal research to analytics, document tracking to secondary treatises, AI tools, legal news, and more. FastCase is the smarter way to run your law library. And now, on to the show. Welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Phil Rosenthal. I'm joined by Chuck Lowry, and we are the hosts for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the American Association of Law Libraries annual meeting and conference from Washington, D.C. Joining me now, I have the president of AALL, Femi Cadmus, and the immediate past president, Greg Lambert. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Phil. Well, before we get to our topic, which is the state of the profession 2019 from AALL, uh, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. So, um, Phil, you noted correctly that I'm the current president of the American Association of Law Libraries. But my daytime regular job is uh, research professor, associate dean, and director of the library at uh, Duke Law School in Durham, North Carolina. And I'm the immediate past president, so I was president the year before Femi took over this year. And I am the Chief Knowledge Services Officer for Jackson Walker out of Houston, Texas. Great. Well, thank you. So let's just begin. Um, if you could tell us, uh, Femi, a little bit about this report. It's a landmark report. And what you think is the biggest conclusion or conclusions you draw from it? So this is an inaugural report. We've never had a state of the profession survey. We've just never um, canvassed the landscape to figure out what we're doing and what the trends are in uh, budgeting, in staffing, in training, in in competencies. We'd never done it before, and it was time to do this. And so that was the impetus that we needed to, to track trends. I think the biggest takeaway that I have seen in this entire report is how versatile we are as law librarians and legal information professionals and how we're responding to changing times and um, evolving technology and actually taking the lead in our various organizations and institutions. That has just been a big revelation. We knew it, but when you're seeing the hard data, it just brings it home so much more. That's, that's, that's been the biggest takeaway sure, for me. Great, thank you. And Greg, what would be your biggest takeaway? And, and I think we are in a data-driven economy. Uh, we are a data-driven industry. And one of the things that we were lacking before was actually going to the powers that be at our organization and having solid data points to present to them about what we do, what we can bring to the table, you know, what our effects are. And this allows us then to have those data points to, to bring to them. Mm-hmm. Just to follow up on something Femi said, this is the inaugural report. Have we given any thought to every two years, every three years, every four years? So um, it's been a couple of months and we've seen tremendous interest and a great response to the um, report. I think one of the things that we haven't tracked in this report that came through very quickly were trends in diversity. What are we, what are mm. we as a profession? Are we diverse enough? Which makes me think we're probably going to go back to the table, to the drawing board uh, quicker than probably what we contemplated. 
we want this to be regular. Um, we know the landscape is changing so rapidly. So I think that a one to two year um, turnaround time frame would actually capture trends better than waiting mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. But I can see this, it, it was very exhaustive, very comprehensive, and a lot of work put into it. But I can see this happening possibly um, sometime late 2020 or in 2021. Yeah, and we'll be following up with the membership to get their feedback on this and determine what, what data points are we hitting that are important to their uh, sub-segment of the industry, and then what data points do we need to look at on the next go-round. So it's, it's probably going to be tweaked a little bit. You may do some sections more often than others. and Yeah, if I had to guess, and it would be a guess, we would look at every two to three years that we would revamp the state of the profession survey. Mm -hmm. Do you think there'll be SIS-specific questions in the future? There, the, the SISs are a core function of AALL, and uh, for those that don't know AALL, that's a special interest sections, so that covers things like the academic law librarians, the government librarians, the private law firm, mm -hmm. technical services. There's, there's a, a, a number of these special interest sections, and because they do have such a, a core relevancy to the, the profession, they are definitely uh, people that are on the front line that we'll be checking in with on any any changes sure. that we have. But that being said, we want to make sure that we're not significantly changing things. We want surveys mm -hmm. that we can track the same type of issue right. over time. And so it, it won't be huge major changes. It, it will be uh, you know, tweaking around the edges. I, sure. I should add that um, the, the state of the profession report was not a single one-person report. Um, we had uh, contributions from an advisory board, and our advisory board was comprised of our major segments. Um, Greg has alluded to that, that we, we have three major segments, the academic law libraries, uh, private firm, corporate libraries, and government. And so we had representation. So in, an, in, right. in a sense, the SISs, the special interest sections, were represented. And then we had um, support from headquarters. So we, Megan Mall um, is um, a staff member who is based in Chicago, and she coordinated this effort um, very well because she is a librarian also and has the background and context. So if I could just ask about one of the specifics, and I don't want to make this a, a promotional question, but one of the really fantastic things about this report is that while there are very interesting data summaries and conclusions in the front, you don't have to guess how they got to them because all of the charts and details are in the back. Really fantastic. One of the things that struck me, and I'm no mathematician, so I may be completely off base here, uh, talking about the budgets in law schools and the mean budget decrease over three or four years was 17%. The median budget was 29%. And I'm wondering if that does not indicate that maybe we're moving even more dramatically than in the past to sort of a two-tier system where, in fact, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and we should expect Supreme Court justices from Harvard, Georgetown, Stanford, and Yale. So I think one of the things that surprised me the most in looking at the data 
was that the budget hits seem to have been taken mostly, well, most hard by law schools. Um, I was surprised. I thought surely it'll be government or maybe it'll be the privates, but no, it's in academic institutions. And in terms of the alignment, I think that it would probably reinforce the you know the way things are aligned right now. It's just reflective of where we are. So I don't think that the poor schools are getting poorer or the rich schools are getting richer. I think across the, the board, all schools, uh, be they in the top 10, and I happen to have worked in top 10 law schools, they are suffering decline in budgets too. So it's, it's just across the board, across the gamut. The amazing thing though is that librarians are very smart and they're responding um, even to these changes and the declining budgets, streamlining operations. And thankfully, uh, technology and automation is making it possible for us to actually do more with less. I know people hate that terminology, but um, that phrase, but that's the, that's the reality that um, most of our new hires in um, academic law libraries uh, are librarians with sophisticated skills and expertise, and we're hiring less of the support staff, um, less of the people who just do the task-oriented uh, work, and more of the high-level skills are being recruited. So everyone from the number one law school to the unranked law schools responding very diligently and very smartly to a changing landscape, which is marked by huge declines in budget and in revenue. And, and Chuck, if I can add to that just a little bit on the government and the private side, I think a lot of that that you see in the decline is timing. Um, mm. I think out of the 2008-2009 recession, the private law libraries took a huge hit at the beginning of that and mm -hmm. we're coming out of that. The government librarians a year or two after that took an even bigger hit and I would say they have not really recovered from that. Uh, the academic uh, I think was a little bit um, delayed in, in feeling the effect for a long time but they're, they're kind of feeling that now but I think with the exception of maybe the government librarians, because that's almost a different situation now, mm -hmm. regardless of the economy. Um, I think we're probably gonna see the academics pulling back out of that for a couple of reasons. One, mm -hmm. you're, you're seeing more students enter law school again. So that fear of I'll never get a job out of law mm -hmm. school, I think is subsiding a little bit. So you're going, I think you're going to see a recovery on that. And then uh, the second option is that we're all looking at alternative ways of expressing and showing our value. And some of that shows up as creating things that may be outside the library budget. We may have created new departments or supplemented other departments. So there may be funding coming in that doesn't show up as a library budget, but that the library itself has some effect on. Well, there's clearly one of the more notable conclusions, I think, from the report. And, and Greg, what surprised you the most? I, I think a lot of it is, well, and from a private law librarian uh, standpoint, we still hold a lot of the purse strings mm -hmm. at, the, uh, at our institutions. And we have a really good relationship with the legal information providers and the the vendors that are out there that are promoting knowledge-based products. Mm -hmm. And one of the best things that we have is, is that relationship. And we're also one of the first 
people that these vendors tend to go to to pitch their ideas, to test their ideas, and to get feedback from them because we have a wide variety of uh, skill sets. We deal, you know, I always say, I could deal with a litigation question in the morning, a real estate uh, question in the afternoon, and an IP question at the end of the day. And because we have that diversity in talent, we have a diversity of vendors that come in, and that, I think, shows up mm -hmm. uh, in this report. Mm -hmm. Good. One of the things that, that I noticed, and this is uh, something, you know, in full disclosure, something that Greg and I have discussed before, <laughs> um, one of the things that I've noticed is that only, for instance, about two-thirds of the libraries are involved in their firm's efforts at AI and data analytics and machine learning. A, a shockingly low percentage of the libraries are involved in their firm's main competitive intelligence research. And, and I wonder what that says specifically about either the breadth or the future of the association. That, you know, people like KM attorneys and competitive intelligence researchers that are in the marketing department and uh, data analysts that work sometimes for the marketing department, sometimes for the CFO, that the people who do buy a lot of information materials or work with them aren't in the library. And is there any thought of addressing that situation? It's definitely part of, do you mind if I take that one, Femi, or you? <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely part of the rebranding effort that the, that the association has done over the past th three or four years. And I know what you're getting at. Is the, uh, is the term library something that, that is a benefit or a detriment? And I would say if you ask the membership, they are very proud to be librarians, and there's a lot that is to offer from librarians. And one of the benefits of having this report is that they're able to show that two-thirds of the firms that are doing AI have their librarians involved in that. And so that's the data point that we can bring to the powers that be that says, look, this is, this is a knowledge question. This is not a technology question. This is a knowledge question. Mm -hmm. And we are your knowledge experts. And so people like being identified as a librarian. Yes. I do not have that in my title, but when people talk to me, I will tell them the first thing is I am a law librarian and here is what we, what we can do. But we have to kind of disassociate the proudness that we have for the term with the ability to understand what it is that we do that may or may not be reflective in a title that the person you're talking to may be limited in understanding how broad that is. And one of the things that the association is doing is really reaching out and talking to industry leaders, thought leaders, uh, bringing people in to talk and talk to our members on how to relay that in the words that make sense to our leadership back at our firms or uh, other institutions. And so I think, again, you know, we're, we're knowledge workers in a knowledge industry. We need the data to tell us what's going on, and the State of the Profession report helps us tell that story. 
following up on that, I thought it was fascinating that there was a question about uh, who runs KM basically in, in law firms, and the, the jury is still out. Are it's forty percent librarians, forty percent IT, and I was wondering uh, maybe if Emmy could lead us off with what AALL can do to to help boost it so that the world realizes it it should be the librarians running KM, not not IT, and and uh, also what can come out of the uh, academic side uh, to to prepare folks uh, for that. You know, I think I'll take this from a another angle, sure. we actually, we're seeing um, diversity in our membership and those who belong to the association. So while we have the label, and historically we've always had it, American Association of Law Libraries, and frequently we just say WAWL these days, um, we're seeing a broad spectrum of membership. A membership is extending outside of um, librarians and legal information professionals. We have technologists um, who are coming into our association. So I, I don't see it as an angle of, hey, KM or AI or, you know, this should belong to the library. I see different people with different skills and different expertise and background coming into the association. I see this very um, healthy, very robust um, opportunity for you know building synergies and collaborations and partnerships and working together. So I, I wouldn't reinforce the divide or, or highlight the divide as like you're supposed to be doing this and I'm supposed to be doing this. I think that we want to work together collaboratively and we're extending this inv invitation for all kinds of um, backgrounds and all kinds of um, expertise and skills to come into mm. our association. Um, for example, I have always, um, as a law library director, just overseen the library. And then I took on my role at Duke Law School, where I'm the Associate Dean for Information Services. And I have oversight not just over the law library, but over IT and academic technologies. Um, so I'm running not just the law library, but I'm running IT and academic technologies. We're merged and we're called information services. So I see that as the future of law libraries, that the um, demarcation and the, 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 the you know, boundaries are going to be really very blurred and will actually at a point start to merge. Um, so that's that's the way that I see, it, and that's the way, I, and that's what I'm experiencing. That's what I'm leaving um, right now. So <laughs> it's oh, me and the yeah. IT folks yeah. and the act tech folks, and I'm learning so much so quickly um, in having oversight of that department. I love it. It's a great message of mm -hmm. unity that that AAAL is home for all. And if you do this kind of work, uh, yeah. let's bring everybody in. Mm -hmm. And and Greg, is that yeah? Where you think it's going as well? And there's a couple of things. One, if you asked a hundred different law firms to define what knowledge management is, you would get a hundred different definitions. So knowledge management means something different to everyone. And as far as the operations of knowledge management, it's not a zero-sum game. It is a the, the ability to use resources across different departments to understand where the what the desires are of the law firm and then uh, define that and determine, is this an information and technology issue or is this a knowledge and resources mm -hmm. issue? And be able to play that part, to understand how to read the room mm -hmm. at your institution and determine what is the best role that I, I can do here. 
And over the years, when, it, when KM initially started, when you saw it move to IT, people saw it as a technology issue and that the, the technology could answer the knowledge management questions. And we're finding out that that's not true. It's <laughs> partly a technology because everything is technology these days, but it's also a lot of information and knowledge and institutional knowledge and understanding that. And that takes attorneys, that takes technology, and it takes your knowledge workers, including your librarians. One of the, one of the things I noticed that, that all of the sectors were very much interested in AI and data analytics, machine learning, natural language processing. One of the interesting things I, I saw in the report, though, is that only half as many law firm libraries were using AI actually in their library management as corporate libraries were. And I wonder if there's uh, any reason for that and, and what, that, what that says about you know, what, what role do you see for these new technologies, not only being managed by the library on behalf of the firm, but actually being used to make the, the library and information services better? Well, I can tell you that uh, one of the good things that library and information professionals can do is they can determine what is real and what is PR and I will tell you that a lot of times we will look at products that claim to have some type of artificial intelligence and machine learning and we look at it and we put it through the test and it doesn't quite meet up with what the, uh, the glossy brochure says that it will do. And so I would say that we, we have probably a higher threshold uh, to hit for some people uh, for some, especially some new technologies. Um, and then we also have the ability to determine whether or not that, oh great, you know, this is a really great product that does what it does, but it doesn't fit necessarily what we do on the ground. And we have those relationships with, again, with the vendors and we have the relationship with our attorneys, understanding what it is, the results that they're wanting to do and to guide them and, and determine whether or not the product that looks really good uh, you know, on paper, uh, when we actually put it to the test, may not actually work. And that also works the other way. There's some technologies that's, that do very well that aren't necessarily as well known or, or publicized um, or can be used in different ways other than, than how they're promoting it. And, and so mm -hmm. there's kind of value on both sides of that. So it seemed there's a lot of good news in this report, but one thing that struck me, and really across all sectors, whether it be academic, government, or uh, firm corporate, is an overwhelming number of librarians said that there really was not a, no opportunity or not enough opportunity for advancement. And uh, I was wondering if you could address what, if anything, we can do to, to, to fix that. Because it was almost a, roughly a two-to-one margin uh, across the board. Well, I think if you look at a demographics, that's going to change. Um, we increasingly at the top um, have many uh, librarians and legal information professionals who are retiring or will be retiring very soon. So I see a shift happening. 
Um, but at the same time, I also see that um, our members need to be trained, uh, need to be trained to move into um, increasing areas of responsibility. And what we are in the association, what we're doing is curating our programming, curating educational programs towards that end. Um, we're actually exploring at this point um, an e-learning type of option for folks who can't um, travel, for example, to the um, annual conference, um, folks who can't even go to meetings in their local chapters um, in their states, who are kind of bound to the office or don't have the resources um, to advance and to get trained. So we're going to, we're embarking on e-learning. Some of them will be deep dives. Some of them will be short um, training sessions, and these will be all online where our members can, in the comfort of their homes or their offices, upgrade their skills and upgrade their expertise and their learning and prepare them you know, for promotion and upward mobility. So I think those two things will help. Um, continuous training and development, professional development. Um, we, do, we, we have also short programs, uh, leadership programs that we have in Chicago, mostly uh, competitive intelligence um, institutes. Um, we have an executive institute that will um, hold here in Washington, D.C. after the annual meeting. So we are really big into training. It's part of our strategic direction. It's um, a lichpin of our uh, a strategic plan that we need to train the next generation of legal information professionals and, and um, law librarians. So on both ends, we're, we're prepared. Um, we're prepared in terms of succession planning, um, equipping them, preparing them to step into roles when leaders at the top leave through retirements. And we're seeing a lot of the retirements happening. I wonder if also your idea of, of widening the tent in a sense and bringing in all the different disciplines would fix the problem too. That if you don't narrowly define your niche, then uh, there might be lots of opportunities to move slightly laterally. Exactly, exactly. And we're seeing that happen. It just needs to happen on a on a wider scale, but it definitely is happening. Where I remember looking at our, our, our online job page, and uh, the ad was for uh, a machine learning analyst, and the company had decided to post on the American Association of Law Libraries um, job site because we essentially have those basic skills, and we just need to build them up and broaden them. But our members are looking at non-traditional positions. I think we are now getting enlightened and we, there's that revelation and aha moment that, hey, I have these skills. I know how to retrieve information. I know how to preserve. I know how to curate, organize information and make it discoverable. I can do so much more than just, you know, working in a traditional library job. So that's happening increasingly. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that I think we're promoting very well is if you are looking at the job trajectory of coming in as an assistant, as an analyst, as a manager, as a and then a director, and you're looking at that, you know, ladder of success. Uh, really have to understand that there are so many other opportunities out there for the skill sets that we bring that it may take a jog off to the left or right uh, on that ladder, and all of a sudden you find yourself on on a different ladder. 
and something that you may not have, have thought about, whether it's knowledge management or data analytics or uh, we even have data scientists that, that are here. So I think there's still lots of opportunities. It's just non-traditional opportunities that are out there. Oh, thank you. Well, I think for our last question, I'll turn it over to my colleague, Chuck. Oh, good. All right. I, I wanted to follow up briefly as long as we were discussing career trajectories. And it's great that we have someone here from the law firm world and someone from the academic world. One of the statistics that really stuck out was the much higher percentage of law school librarians who have both the MLS and the JD and I thought maybe Greg would have some thoughts about whether or not a JD for law firm directors is more or less necessary now than it was five or six or seven years ago. I don't ever think that it was, it's not like in academics where it's a requirement, it's a hard written rule. I think that in the law firms, there have been plenty of directors or, or management level folks that are not JDs. And there's just a lot of skill sets that a librarian brings in through their understanding of how, inf how to compile information, how to understand it, how to work with the vendors, how to train people on how to use the products that are very beneficial and bring high value to a firm. So it's not necessarily that they have to understand the law, they have to understand how to run the legal information department. And Femi? Well, in the academic, in academic law libraries, um, the JD continues to be a very important uh, component. I'm not saying it's the be-all and end-all, but increasingly we are serving as faculty in law schools. We're teaching law students um, and um, we're providing support for clinical education. That really requires having a background in the law. Um, there are other opportunities in academic law libraries that don't require it, but I will say predominantly that's the case. And Chuck, that's what your your, your observation is very correct. That's that's the way it is in law schools, and I think it will continue to be that way for a while. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of the road for our episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Phil, mm -hmm. for having us, and thank you, Chuck. Um, oh. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. <laughs> and, and if our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? So, you know, our listeners are very savvy. They can find me, I'm sure, <laughs> by just Googling me, so that's not going to be a problem. Pretty well yeah. known. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they can find me, if they want to reach out on Twitter, it's, uh, it's G. Lambert, or Glambert, as I, as I like to say. Um, or uh, I do a, a separate podcast called The Geek in Review. Well, thank mm -hmm. you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Phil Rosenthal, and on behalf of Chuck Lowry, until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.